Hi, welcome back to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I'm Francine Belay, your host, and I'm super thrilled to bring you inspirational stories, strategies, and practical tips to get more meaning in your work and in your life, make more money, and lead a movement to change the world. I am on a mission to help entrepreneurs and leaders to become leading voices in their field by leveraging what makes them unique and attract their ideal client and make a bigger impact in the world. So my goal for you is both to experience success in your business and also live your best life now. Welcome to this season four of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. In this season, I am breaking things down a little bit more specifically uh, and featuring experts and guests who are giving you actually practical techniques um, and tools to live a more meaningful life. My aim is to bring a very practical dimension to our conversations uh, around the three key questions that I ask, the three M I call that, meaning, money, and movement, and even decrypt the science behind achieving happiness in life. So I'm really, really excited for by this new um, season and with the great lineup uh, of guests that I had for you. Uh, and I'm sure you will love this season too. If you haven't listened to the previous seasons, the season one, the season two, and the season three, after listening to this um, episode, go and listen to those um, previous episodes because it's going to give you some good, actually, uh, insight towards actually what we are discussing on this show. Well, some people read the book, enjoy it, and hopefully take some notes to improve their business or their lives. Most people simply forget what they read after a while. But a few are so impacted by what they read that they decide to do something about it um, and even sometimes change their life. This was the case with Dr. Jess Wade, a physicist at Imperial College London, who says that her life changed over the last few years thanks to the book Inferior by Angela Saini. So she said that for a long time, she felt that she was so small to do something, you know, and insignificant to do anything that was impactful. But Jess is now called a one woman powerhouse. She is a scientist on a mission. She wants every woman who has achieved something impressive in science to get the prominence and recognition they deserve starting with a Wikipedia entry. Here is my conversation with Dr. Jess Wade. Hi, Jess. Welcome to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. 
Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to finally have you on this show. Tell us in your own words what you currently do and what your job entails. Oh, that's great. So as you kind of mentioned in the introduction, I have kind of two jobs. By daytime, I work at Imperial and my job there is working on new materials for electronic devices. Particularly, I'm focusing on light emitting diodes. So we're trying to create new, more sustainable materials that are more efficient emitting light and that we can get really great colors and really thin and flexible displays. And that's super exciting. I do a lot of creating devices, characterizing different materials, working with chemists, material scientists, biologists, you name it, we're working with them. And, and so that part of my life is really great. And then in the evening and on the weekends, I have this big project to try and make Wikipedia more representative of the diverse communities who do science. So as you mentioned, I'm really campaigning to get more women scientists on the site, but also more people of color and more LGBTQ plus scientists, the kind of people who traditionally have been doing science kind of unacknowledged and uncelebrated. And so I, I do a lot of work on Wikipedia, but then also work with kind of schools and teachers to try and get them to recognize that science and engineering and maths and whatever you want to do is genuinely a career that's open and encouraging and important for everyone to contribute to. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I also love your Twitter handle when you say that you are the least useful doctor in your family. Can you tell me, is, are, are, are your parents both doctors or some other people in your family are doctors? Yeah, so my parents are both medical doctors. My dad is a neurologist. My mum is a psychiatrist. Oh, and they yeah. both work for the, uh, the NHS in the UK. So I kind of grew up thinking, that obviously everyone would have a job where you're doing things for other people, right? And, and medicine is this incredible career where you can really transform people's lives every day. Mm. And, and then I became really interested in physics when I was at high school. I had an amazing chemistry and an amazing physics teacher. And they both kind of sung the, the song of how great physics was and, and all of this. And, and I, came, I became kind of fascinated by this subject that could explain everything from the very, very tiny to the uncomprehensibly large you know we can go from atoms and molecules and inside atoms and molecules to to outer space and this became absolutely you know captivating for me but then whilst I was I was getting into physics my brother was also getting interested in medicine and then he ended up becoming a junior doctor so now everyone in my family <laughs> is, is one of these going out saving people's lives and I'm just like oh look I just played with some lasers today this is so cool so, so yeah, I do feel like I'm the most useless. <laughs> I get that. Wow, that is impressive family. Tell me, have you always wanted to become a doctor since you were a kid? Because you obviously grew up with this doctor family. Is, has it always been that in your mind or you went through some phases as well? No, I mean, I genuinely doing a PhD, I had absolutely no idea you could do it. I knew my parents were both doctors in that they went out and they did things, you know, they worked in hospitals and they worked with people who had had physical or mental, un, well, physically or mentally unwell. But I didn't, I didn't have any idea that you could become to do a PhD in physics. You know, I started doing, actually, before I studied physics at, at Imperial, I did an art degree. So I was always really interested in, in art and creativity. And that's been something that's been really important to my career in science so far. But I think that I started studying physics and just became absolutely fascinated by both the subject that I was learning and the people that I was learning it with. You know, Imperial is a university in the centre of London, which is science specialist. So we only have science subjects and, and obviously also medicine. 
and, and you're surrounded by people from all over the world. Something that really struck me was how international it was, how diverse the ideas were and the kind of creativity on a scientific scale. And I think that I just became so excited and kind of inspired by the people that I was working with and the stuff that I was working that I never wanted to leave. So, so whilst doing a PhD sounds like this big heroic, wow, that's such a wonderful thing. And at the end you get doctor and, and that's really great because it means that I can stand up to my family and say, now I'm a doctor too. Actually, it was just because I was so excited by the people that I was working with that I didn't want to stop doing it. And then in the kind of final year of my undergraduate degree, I got the, the chance to do a, a project, a research project with a group who were working on kind of new materials for solar cells. And, and I loved the work that I was doing. I was really, really motivated by the senior people in the research group and the kind of stuff they were doing, but also by the junior scientists who really made it a welcoming and encouraging experience for everyone. So I kind of had this blissful entry into my scientific career. And then as the further I've gone through my scientific career, the more I've realized that for the majority of people, that isn't the case. You know, they're not as well supported. They don't have those inspirational people who look out for them. And so I've really tried alongside editing Wikipedia to try and kind of campaign to make academia a more inclusive place that is more welcoming to people from underrepresented backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you also mentioned that you really also love art, actually. How was it a possibility that you could have chosen art also rather than science or it was just like on the side of uh, your science uh, interest? Yeah, I, I think that art has always been something. I think it's so interesting when you kind of look back at, at the history of the world almost and you have things like the Renaissance where you had these people who were much much celebrated artists but they were also working with metals they were That's doing true. incredible things with stained glass and and we've always had these people these kind of polymaths throughout history who managed to put it all together and I think something really unfortunate about education at the moment worldwide but particularly in the UK is we we make young people select subjects really really early so very early in a child's life will we say you have to choose whether you're going to do arts-based subjects so that could be modern foreign languages that could be history that could be philosophy that could be art or you're going to do science subjects mm. and we have we had weird weights that we put on the two so at the moment in the UK is we're, we're putting a lot of effort into getting young people to choose science mm. and I think that that's a huge detriment to the things that we lose by not learning history and not learning art mm. and actually having that opportunity between school and university to go out and to do something that really made me think how how can you best present this how can we do something differently to what people have done before you know all the things that you learn in an arts degree are actually really important for when you're going to do research science mm. and and i was really lucky to do that you know it's free to do an arts an art foundation in the uk when you're under if you're under 18 when you apply so i was very lucky that my teachers made me aware of that and my parents were supportive of me doing it but I, I think it should be I think it should be open to everyone. We have an amazing, amazing course at Imperial, which is music with physics. So you can do a music and physics degree where you do the music at the Royal College of Music, which is luckily just down the road, and then you do a physics degree. And I just think that kind of thing, recognizing that actually the two the two skills go really hand in hand with each other mm -hmm. and complement each other so much, you know. If you think about putting together a science experiment, you're trying to do things no one's done. You're trying to use equipment in a way no one has done before. And you're looking at data and trying to interpret things that no one's ever analyzed. And that takes so much creativity. I think it's really, really scandalous that we still think that the two aren't connected. 
I'm so glad that you say that. My gosh. Yeah. And then, of course, as you say, not many people do this kind of connection. And today, what you hear is this discourse is this science, 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 science only. And then they don't understand or mention that art also can play a role into, you know, developing a science career and things like that, even in tech as well, where me, I come from. Um, the same thing is true. You know, art is very important. Um, you know, that's really uh, fantastic that, you know, you can make that connection and uh, really, you know, <laughs> advocate for both. Uh, and, and also fabulous to say that you can be a musician, do music and physics at the same time. <laughs> that should be great, actually. Can you briefly tell us what a day life look like for you? Oh, it completely if I follow you, if I'm a small fly and I follow you around, <laughs> when you follow me around. So what would I see? If it's a kind of doing experiments day, often we get we get new materials. So I'm really, really interested, particularly in materials at the moment that can be used in light emitting diodes that emit circularly polarized light. So oh, this oh is... speak English for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna explain it to you because I think it's really exciting. Yes. <laughs> so at the moment, if you have an iPhone X or a Samsung Galaxy or an, uh -huh. OLED, an OLED television display, an organic light emitting diode television display, mm -hmm. it has something inside it, a filter inside it that is basically acting to improve the contrast of the image that you get on the screen. Mm -hmm. So if you're watching TV or looking at the your phone and a light goes on behind you, if there wasn't this filter, it would hit off the shiny, shiny electrode at the back and distort the image you get. Oh. So at the moment, they put this very clever filter in the screen mm. that means that the light from behind you goes through that filter, becomes something called circularly polarized. So it becomes polarized light, hits mm. off that back electrode, the polarization inverts, and then it can't get out of the filter. Mm. And, and this is really clever. And all of our displays have it. But at the moment, the pixels in our screen emit light which isn't polarized. So we lose 50% of that light intensity in, in the filter of the screen. Mm -hmm. So my job is trying to make those pixels emit polarized light so that we have much more efficient television and mobile phone displays. Wow. And, and, and a kind of day in the life of Jess at the moment mm -hmm. is that we, we receive some new materials, some cool mm -hmm. materials to investigate. So like I said in the introduction, I work a lot with chemists, so maybe they've done some synthesis and made some actually I'm just waiting for some that I'll collect on Monday from my great chemistry friends mm -hmm. and then and then I go into into the lab we have a lab which is called a clean room which means it's a super clean environment with only a thousand particles per cubic meter so there's it's you know you have to put on a special gown and you look like you're going into some kind of contaminated war zone and then you go in and then you work with these tiny tiny amounts of materials so they're kind of milligrams that uh, that a chemist will synthesize and, and I do some kind of cool treatments to be able to get really nice surfaces that I can then deposit these materials on so that I can investigate their material properties. And then ultimately we'll find out the best recipe to put them into a device. And, and this kind of work would take maybe half of the day, maybe you'd go up until lunchtime doing some kind of cool, very kind of chemistry edge of experimental physics. And then you'd go into a lab and you'd do some kind of interesting characterization so, so if it's a kind of experimental day, it will be a lot of practical experiments and then a lot of looking at data and trying to work out what's going on. I think the really beautiful thing that has happened in this area of science recently is the kind of um, the combination of the chemistry, the materials, the physics, but also a lot of computation. So before, kind of when our parents were growing up, you'd just design a material and then you'd have to put it in a device to see if it would work. But now technology has evolved so much 
that you can do kind of very clever predictions on your computer about what kind of material properties a material might have. So you can look at what kind of things it would dissolve in, what kind of conduction, you know, how good it would be at transporting electrons. You can look at how it might fit together with other molecules if you were putting it into some kind of solid state structure. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of that as well. So actually it's kind of, it's accessing all of these different skills that you have that you can sit in front of a computer and draw out a molecule and try and predict what it might do. But then you can go to a science or a chemistry lab and trying to make these materials into devices and look at it, what it will do. And then, and then ultimately, because I get this really big privilege of collaborating with people in so many different places, I often have to have meetings with people either on my campus or on Skype like this, if they're in different countries, to try and talk about and share our results and then to, to see what's going on. So that's kind of a typical day. And then I'd go home, I guess. <laughs> I, have, I have dinner. And then in the evening, I start, mass, I start doing my Wikipedia project. <laughs> And, and so if people say, do you want to come out tonight? I'm like, Ooh, but if I can be home by like... I have to complete this amazing woman profile on Wikipedia. <laughs> so, so I usually, you know, read papers or attend conferences or anything like that. And then I read about someone who's really, really fantastic. And then from there, I just go and I, get, I start putting together the Wikipedia page. And I, and I do lots and lots of research and it will take me kind of a couple of hours after dinner. I, it's, it's funny. I think I probably used to do more like watching TV and now I just edit Wikipedia. In a really <laughs> That's your TV right there. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it sounds really funny and it's like, I can laugh when I say it, but I learn so much more like mm. this, the stories you learn about people's lives. And actually it has taught me so much about the way that science fits together. You know, all of these interdisciplinary areas that people yeah. are trying to do now. Mm -hmm. So many people have been doing that for so long. And, and, and it's really struck me the kind of journeys that scientists have had to get into where they are today. It's, it's such a privilege to put together someone's biography that it is much better than anything I could watch on television. <laughs> yes, because you are playing a very good role as well in uh, that, you know, making that, you know, being more visible as well. So, you know, rather than seeing, sitting passively watching a screen, <laughs> you are taking part, an active part. It's like you are doing another lab, but at home this time. But I'm so fascinating. This lab, uh, you know, your work is so technical that, you know, but as you are describing it, it's so fun. But this is not the image that people will have. You know, usually we have this kind of really grumpy scientist person in their lab, not having fun, being very too serious. But the way you describe that sounds fun, right? <laughs> it's honestly it's so fun i've yet to meet a scientist who doesn't absolutely love what they do you know they hate the pol politics of science yeah. and the admin and all the parts about any job that are boring and rubbish but every every scientist i meet absolutely loves the the practical the getting to do the science to analyzing new results there's no part of it that couldn't be exciting right we come up with an experiment every single day you do something that no one has done, you know, there's no way, you're, unless you're trying to learn and repeat something that someone's done and maybe, yeah. maybe you're doing that because, you know, you're trying to fit together different aspects of it to try something new. But yeah. actually when you, when you get to doing it, the stuff that you're doing, no one has ever done before. So there's no way that that could be boring. You just, <sighs> have to, you just have to keep making every single day fun. And I think so much of that actually comes down to the people that you get to work with. Mm. So the teams that you work with really influence the experience that you have inside science, which is why it's so important that all of us keep campaigning to have those more 
welcoming and diverse because because I think everyone should feel like they can contribute to whatever scientific experiment that you're doing and 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 the best teams are going to be the most productive teams and 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 that's something that I've really celebrated throughout my science career so far and been really lucky to work in phenomenal teams yeah now let's talk about the impact that the book inferior has on you and then prompted you actually to start this wikipedia and you know editing those 300 plus i don't know where you are at today but you know about 720 no way my gosh wow it's so fun i think (laughs) the problem is now like i i love writing them so much i want them to get longer and longer like i want to find out more and more about these people Sometimes I read these Wikipedia biographies, particularly of men scientists, and they're so long. They have every aspect of their kind of childhood and then, you know, the transition to university and all of this. And I'm like, I've got to get to that stage. I've got to start doing this. So, so I read Inferior a couple of years ago now. It's, it's, it's a kind of phenomenal book. Angela Saini is a, a journalist turned science writer, an engineer turned journalist, science writer. She, she studied engineering at university and then, and then did these phenomenal courses in science journalism and is, is an incredibly powerful voice in, in science journalism worldwide, actually. And Inferior was a book that looked at the science that had been used to perpetuate the stereotypes about men and women. So all of the neuroscience studies done in the kind of mid to late 90s, looking at men and women's brains that have come out with these ridiculous statements like women prefer these hobbies, men are much better at computing and photography and mathematics and women are better at social things and anything that will interface with, with young people. You know, all of, these, all of these stereotypes that are kind of ingrained in society's yeah. concept of men and women yeah. have come out of incredibly dodgy experiments, none of which have been reproduced and all of which have been designed by very, very biased scientists. And, and I think I hadn't really appreciated that. You know, I'd, I'd grown up in a world just like every other child at the moment who gets given blue or pink things, who goes into a bookshop <laughs> and everything's very gendered. And my parents had always been really, you know, gung-ho and liberal and never, you, me and my brother both had dolls, you know, it wasn't like, oh, was put through <laughs> but you are surrounded by that. You can't, we don't grow up in bubbles. We live in a, in a society that really perpetuates this inequality. And Inferior was the first time that I had ever read anything where, an author approached it very scientifically. Angela didn't want to set out to prove that women were different or better than men. She wanted to find out the real answers to this science, whether there was any weight behind it, you know, whether these experiments carried anything that was important or relevant. Mm. And, and, and she introduces them all in so well. You know, there's so much about neuroscience and particularly the statistics of neuroscience that I don't understand at all and wouldn't have understood at all unless I had someone like her walking me through it and talking me through it. And, and in that book, she also introduces all of these kind of incredible women who throughout history were just standing up and saying, we have, you know, we have no rights. We can't vote. We can't own property. We can't graduate from university. How can you begin to say that we're intellectually inferior to men when we're put in a position that means we have nowhere near the same privileges? And, and reading that book really inspired and kind of empowered me I, I actually read it to review it for a physics magazine called Physics World, which is released by the Institute of Physics. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't probably hadn't reviewed a book since I was about 12. And at school, you know, you don't review many books during oh, your graduate yeah. physics degree. So I read it about three times and I kept talking about it with my parents and sending it back and forth with my dad being like, can you read this, this review? Can you check it's okay? And I think in that, I suddenly realized how much this book had started meaning to me. 
so I took it everywhere I went you know I went to a lot of science conferences I did a, I do a lot of work with schools so I went to a lot of schools and I was always giving it out you know I was ordering so many of them my mum was like stop ordering copies of this book you're going absolutely crazy and every time Angela was talking in London I'd go to see her talk because you know unlike me who I can't moderate my own voice and I can't not sound enthusiastic she always sounds so calm and so eloquent and she's so perfect on talking about it and, and I found her so inspirational and then I met uh, another inspirational woman called Alice White who was a, a doctor of the history of science so that's another cool thing you can get a PhD in that I would have had no idea about and she she works at the Wellcome Collection in London which okay. is our big medical research foundation which really fund medical research worldwide mm. and and Alice's job at the welcome is archiving the welcomes content digitally so she does a lot of work with Wikipedia and getting welcome content. off King Cross right yeah 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 it's just Houston. Houston. exactly it's, it's a beautiful beautiful mm. museum if anyone yeah. is near King's Cross they have a really beautiful museum of yeah. the history of medicine they also fund pretty much all of the biomedical research in the UK they have incredible international programs. So they do a huge research program with African scientists in the UK. Anyway, the welcome is great. Alice is great. And she taught me all about how to edit Wikipedia, but then also about this huge bias on Wikipedia. Oh. So whilst it's this really great resource, you know, that particularly English speaking Wikipedia yeah. is accessed about 32 million times a day, billions of times a month. It is used by kind of school children, journalists, a huge amount in science too, which I hadn't really appreciated. You know, research has turned to it an awful lot. But, but the content on it is really biased and it's really biased because the people creating it are all quite similar. You know, about 90% of them are men, the majority of whom live in North America. Mm -hmm. And as a result, coverage about things like the global South at all or women is really, really terrible and, and not, not very good quality and also probably not on there. You know, it's about 17% of the biographies on English speaking Wikipedia are about women, which is, which I, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, firstly, it's 2019. But secondly, we make up 51% of the population. And I think it's really terrible if we're saying that only a fifth of the important people in the world are women. Mm -hmm. And so when Alice told me that, and having just read Inferior, you know, there's only so much you can achieve now by writing to scientists and saying what you're doing is wrong. And that's basically what all of these inspirational women had been doing throughout history. Mm. But we have the power now to massively change something on the, on the internet. Yep. And, and I just thought, you know, I can do this, but also I like challenges and I like things being really organized. I can, I think if I was just like, Oh yeah, I'll just edit Wikipedia. I'll do one every now and then I'd, I'd probably not achieved anything. So I was just like, I need to edit it in a mass way. I'm going to write one a day. And, um, <laughs> It's been, it's been an absolutely amazing journey, mainly because sometimes I really freak out that I'm not going to have enough time to do it. So I'm like, oh my gosh, on Sunday, I better write four biographies because I'm not going to have enough time on Wednesday because I might have to go to that thing. And then obviously Wednesday comes and I've read about someone else incredible. So I'm like, ah! Wow, that is such a commitment. When do you think you'll achieve your 1,000? <laughs> I think, I, oh, I don't know. I think my mom wants me to stop when I get to 1,000 because I like, <laughs> You've got to start talking to me again. <laughs> For everyone listening, I do talk to my mother all of the time. But I think that um, probably early next year. I don't know. I can't. I can't. Yeah. I, you know, when I speak to people, they're like, do you think you'll ever stop? Do you think you'll ever run out of people to write about? And, and I think that's a really interesting question. You know, there's, there's about 
one and a half million biographies on English speaking Wikipedia. So to get it up to 50-50, we're going to have to have about 750,000 biographies about women on English speaking Wikipedia. And, and so far I've written like, you know, about 720. So I've not really contributed that much. So I really need to keep going. <laughs> yeah, but that is a lot already. 720. That is a massive achievement. So tell us what actually, how one, first of all, becomes a Wikipedia editor. If somebody wants also to find a passion of something and want to edit some, you know, uh, people from that, how somebody becomes Wikipedia editor. So Wikipedia editing is the easiest thing in the entire world. If you've ever used Word, Microsoft Word, to write a document, you can edit Wikipedia. If you go on Wikipedia and you look at a page, actually what you can do, even without creating a user account, is you can edit it to correct it and improve it. You know, sometimes you're reading a page, probably one of my pages, if you read them, there's a whole bunch of typos. I may have got something wrong. You know, everyone who edits Wikipedia is a human. So, so that's something really important to remember that all of the content on Wikipedia is created by volunteers just like you and me. Mm -hmm. and, and it's rigorously checked by other Wikipedia editors. You have to obviously cite all of the sources that you use. Mm -hmm. And actually there's criteria for whether those sources are, are trustworthy. But, but everyone on there is contributing in their own personal free time. And I think that's something incredible about the encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. But if you go on there and you notice something is wrong, you can just click edit. So on the side of any of the pages, there'll be a button that says edit. And then you can just correct that typo, put in a reference if you want to, and then hit publish. I think the best thing to do as a new editor is to try and find a Wikipedia editathon going on near you. So they happen all the time. And that's when a whole bunch of new editors will come together and they'll be taught by someone who is experienced in editing Wikipedia, how to create a user profile and how to access the kind of support from other Wikipedians and other kind of community groups on Wikipedia. And then also how to start to put together these pages. But if you can't get along to an editathon, there's loads of really great instructions on both Wikipedia itself about how to make a new page, but also on um, Wikipedia education. Mm. So there's a whole community on Wikipedia of educators who work with museums, learned societies, and also in universities to try and teach people how to edit Wikipedia for education. And they have some really, really great resources. Mm. So actually the easiest thing is to create a user account and to try and find one of these kind of super supportive communities mm. who will help you in your early days of editing, because yeah. it shouldn't be frightening at all. You know, if you've, you if you've done anything scientific or academic at school, if you've ever had to write a literature review or do research for anything, then, then you're in a really, really good place to start editing on Wikipedia. And there are loads of great projects. So these things, there's a project called Wiki Women in Red, which is all about trying to turn the red links about women. So the links that when you click them at the moment, don't go to anything. You okay. know, we've probably all seen those on Wikipedia. Yeah. There'll be like a name or a topic or a city, which comes up, it's mentioned in a Wikipedia article. But when you click the link, it goes to a page that says, oh, we don't have a page for that. Do you want to start it? And so there's this project called Wiki Women in Red that is, you know, lots and lots of editors all over the world who have lists of impressive women who you can go and find out about and create their pages. And it is such a welcoming and incredible community to get involved with that if you ever have a question or if you're thinking, oh, I don't know if this person is notable enough to be on Wikipedia. Oh no, I'm trying to find a reference for this. How do I do it? How do I find a picture of them? Then that's a really good place to turn to to ask. 
The other thing you can do alongside creating words for Wikipedia is upload your photos. So there's a great space called Wiki Commons, which is like the image library of Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. And anyone listening, if they take any great photos, if they have any photos of machines in their office, equipment in their labs, or just incredible places that they see in the cities that they live in, if they upload those to Wiki Commons, then they can be used freely by people all around the world. And that's a really another great way to, to contribute to the encyclopedia. Mm, yes, I love Wiki Commons, which I which I use a, a lot. But I haven't uploaded any photo. I might I might have to upload my photos there. I have tons of photos yeah, um, you know, from all like, over uh, all around the world that I could be uh, putting there. That's really yeah insightful actually <laughs> yeah so you see things but you don't do much with them so it's great to have this kind of insight as well yeah you can if you put them on wiki commons you know if you've if you've been in the city if you've been in central london and taken mm. a great photo of the house of parliament mm. or you know a double decker bus i'm just saying everything that's a cliche now <laughs> done that kind of thing and then they get put on the wikipedia article about that uh -huh. they'll be seen by millions and millions of people and i just think that's the coolest thing you know oh. we live in a time now where you can share the information and oh, the images nice. that you create freely with everyone and, and i think that's really really fantastic that's true I, I, you know especially i'm a good user of this wiki commons so i should be uploading my photos there i'll, I'll really have you know to take an action toward that <laughs> Definitely, yes. Tell me also, you also have a great perspective on the lack of diversity everywhere, you know, especially in science. And you, you know, your take is that we need to invest in skills and confidence. Um, tell me more about what you've seen about this lack of confidence in, um, you know, the realm that you've been around. I think that we have, um, we have a really big problem in science that we're not making it clear to everyone that they're all welcome to come and study and work in it, science and engineering. So I think kind of two things need to happen. We need to do an awful lot of work to support young people to feel confident enough to choose the subjects to then go on to study them at university. Mm -hmm. But then we also need to transform science and engineering, university and industry to make sure it's ready to welcome those people and to support them throughout their scientific careers. So I think that, that in, in, in kind of high school, we get a really big confidence drop in, in girls particularly, mm -hmm. and also in, particularly I think in girls of color, in their ability to choose to, to study subjects like advanced mathematics, physics, computer science, even though they score really well when they do them in exams, they don't choose to study them. And, and coming back to what we were mentioned, talking about before, where we make young people choose subjects really, really early, mm. that, that by the age of 15 or 16, you could have opted out of something like physics, chemistry, maths. You could have said, that's not for me, just because of your lack of confidence in the subject, yeah. rather than anything to do with your ability. And actually, when you've made that decision, then it's really hard to come back later on. Mm. We've got kind of really stupid career structures that mean you couldn't suddenly choose to do an engineering degree later because you hadn't chosen maths or yeah. physics when you were 15. And, yeah. and, and so much research has shown that it's nothing to do with ability or innate interest, that actually girls, people of color are super able and they're super, super interested in these subjects and they recognize the value of these things to society but actually they they don't have a very supportive teacher their parents are unaware of these careers 
mainly because they've changed so much than when their parents were younger. You know, yeah. the things people are doing in tech now is absolutely mind blowing compared to what people were doing when our parents were younger. Mm -hmm. So how could they pretend to offer them careers advice? Mm -hmm. But actually the, the quality of the teacher and the support that young people have to make those decisions is so important. Mm -hmm. But then I equally think that we have to make sure universities are welcoming to everyone. You know, the, the, more, the more that you read at the moment about university troubles with, with sexism, with huge incidences of racism, with, with really outspoken, open homophobia, I think, I think that it's one thing to try and encourage these young people to choose to study these subjects, but we actually have to change the places we work in to make sure that they keep them in them. Mm, yeah did you also suffer from a lack of confidence you sound like a very confident person and things like that have you ever suffered from a lack of confidence I think I yourself suffer from a lack of confidence every single day but i think <laughs> that i think you know i think you feel it all the time you feel it in any profession where everyone is incredibly motivated mm. and incredibly intelligent and mm. and you feel every single day i don't deserve to belong here that kind of common thing you hear about all the time at the moment imposter syndrome and exactly. every day like I'm I'm not good enough and I'm not going to be able to do this exam or I'm not going to be able to do this and the only way that I could get through any of it was by over preparing like crazy you know for any exam I did from kind of you know the exams I did when I was 15 to the exams I did when I left school to the exams I did when I got to university I I revised as much as I could and I made it something that I really enjoyed and actually I really enjoyed it being a bit harder than what I thought I could achieve because that meant it was something that I wanted to work towards. Yeah. You know, I can remember a few exams at school when I was 14 or 15 where it was so easy. You knew you wouldn't have to do anything and you'd just be able to go in and get there. And I found that so, so boring. I was just like, I couldn't stay in a subject like this. I actually, you love that challenge, right? You love it being a bit harder than what you can do. Yeah. And, and so no, I feel unconfident all the time. Every time someone emails me to say, will you come and talk here? I like, I'm so nervous. I like hold on to a small stone in my pocket the whole time, like trying to be like, calm down, Jess, you have to just be calm. But, but, then, but then you've just got to get through it and do it because you know that A, you'll feel so much better once you yeah. come to the other side. And then something that my mom always tells me is, everyone in that room wants you to do well exactly. you know, when you go for an interview when you when you do a talk in front of a whole bunch of people when you give a scientific presentation mm -hmm. no one in that room is sitting there thinking i really hope she screwed this up <laughs> so, <laughs> so i just have to keep remembering that yeah. but sometimes it's super hard that is a great advice, actually, to remember, actually, you know, that people want you to do better, you know, to do a good job when you are presenting or doing uh, something that you feel uncomfortable with. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, actually, you also think that um, getting more powerful people in the conversation to support diversity uh, rather than min minorities just by themselves shouting or, you know, promoting what they are doing will be, you know, is a key. What actually I'm wondering, would you say that from your perspective will be their motivation to, to do so, to support the minorities since they are in the power uh, realm at the moment? Yeah, I think that we have a really big challenge in universities and in industry that the majority of people who do the kind of legwork on diversity are the people mm. who are from underrepresented yes. anyway. Mm. Particularly, again, it falls on especially women of color within chemistry, physics, technology to mm. advocate and to support the new people of color coming in. Yeah. And you have quite a lot of evidence that 
at universities, the kind of soft things that, that universities don't particularly value but are very important, like the, the teaching roles, anything that involves students' well-being, all of those things fill, fall towards women. And, and actually, at the moment, they're not really part of any promotion criteria. So people are taking on these roles of advocacy, of campaigning, of promoting better workspaces for all, but they're not getting recognized for them. And I think that we need university leaders. We need particularly the kind of white men in charge of pretty much all of our institutions now, whether it's tech, industry or academia, to, to take control of this and to really make it something that they prioritize. The way that I think we need to get them to do it, obviously it's kind of fair and it's the right thing to do but i don't think that argument works with everyone it should work with everyone but i don't think it does work with everyone i think you have to show them the kind of economic and academic benefit of having diversity in these teams mm -hmm. that actually more diverse teams just do much better science you're much more likely to come to an answer no one has ever done before if you have a bunch of people who are trained and think in different ways if if we recognize international diversity so much which you do in science we should recognize how important it is to have gender diverse teams to have teams of a whole bunch of different ethnicities and and all different backgrounds and i think that when you start to show them evidence that there is actually that impact on on their success then then that's when people start to become engaged so there are some people who are kind of easy to convert who mm. recognize that you know maybe they have young children maybe they have a wife in academia maybe they see the the benefit of this and and they realize it from an equality and a fairness perspective but then the rest of them you have to go and you have to show them cases mm. where improving diversity has actually improved that institution there's a, a university in the uk a chemistry department in the university of york mm -hmm. and they they started really investing in diversity and equality properly within their university you know really changing the hours in which they had meetings making sure that they had proper access to parental leave and proper access to childcare, making sure that they supported people at those kind of really important career transitions from undergraduate to postgraduate postgraduate to postdoc postdoc to lecturer etc and and within about 10 years they completely transformed the gender diversity within their chemistry department and then they could show that during that time they also brought in more grants and published more scientific papers and had much more higher impact on entrepreneurship and industry and i think you need case yeah. studies like that you need yeah. examples of where it's actually benefited scientifically to have it and 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 obviously anecdotes and personal stories are really important too mm -hmm. i think particularly when you hear the stories of the kind of tireless campaigners speaking out about me too and and bullying and harassment within academia those kind of things are really important but we have to make sure that we don't drain those people and make them constantly repeat quite traumatic events mm. but actually i think we need we really need people in positions of power to 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 take to yeah to take this seriously to take these stories seriously and to act um but kind of to support everyone within their scientific institutions just not the chosen few that they are at the moment mm, now that's great actually you know showing what is in it for them building a strong case um you know and to see the positive impact on you know what they are trying to achieve you know i think is uh yes a very good way of uh, bringing those people because i totally agree that you know getting only those people who are concerned to form their own club and 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 talking about that you know sometimes doesn't you know um 
you know, move the needle. So, you know, need to bring most influential people in whatever cause it is to make sure that you get the, um, you know, your your voice amplified to get to the real power. Um, so let's talk about what actually, when did you realize who you are, if such thing has happened in your life yet? <laughs> and what you are meant to do in life or have you always known because you seem to have this very clarity of what you are doing now that I'm wondering if you have you know how do you see that yourself I think that I probably always knew that I'd want to do something that made the world a better place yeah because I have parents who've always done something that makes the world a better place particularly yeah. my mom you know being a psychiatrist is such a hard and demanding job yeah and she doesn't stop when she gets home. She's always trying to help everyone around her, whether that's kind of the builders or the street cleaners <laughs> or the milkmen or, you know, every single one my mum wants to help. And so, so I think I probably learned an awful lot from her. But then also I, I think maybe my life has changed in the last few years and largely thanks to Angela Saini and Inferior because I, I think that for a long time I felt like I was probably too small and insignificant to do anything that was impactful mm. and that I, I obviously have always loved what I do and I'm really lucky to be able to do what I love but I, I and I'd appreciated that other people didn't get the privilege that I have mm. but I think that reading Inferior and actually Angela's new book called Superior which I don't yes I've heard about that too now <laughs> yeah, which is looking at the prevalence of academic racism mm. and both of those books actually showed me that the privileges that I've had in life are something that I a should not take for granted and b should try and act to make well uh, to make an opportunity for everyone and and um yeah so I think that I always knew that I'd do something I'd always knew that I'd try and do something that was good because of my parents but then actually Angela really cemented that we really have to act now because the world that we live in is actually becoming quite a lot more unequal mm. and and unless there are academic scientists people in technology people in industry like us who really campaign to try and make it more equal then it's just going to become somewhere that's not a very pleasant place to be mm-hmm. and tell me what did you struggle the most in life um struggle the most in life that i can think about right now having have having relived so much of school with you in this conversation so far it was probably in academically it was definitely in high school trying to keep up with maths um, at first you know, I, I think um, maths is this beautiful, incredible language, which is so useful for so many different aspects of our lives. Mm-hmm. But actually, at the beginning, I found it incredibly difficult to do, really hard to visualize and really hard to get my head around how, how, it, how it was useful, how it would ever be more than just rearranging equations. Mm-hmm. So probably when I was like 15 or 16, it was that struggle with, with trying to make sure I could get, do as well as I wanted to do in, in, in maths. And then I had kind of one school holiday where I just worked so, so hard to try and get it. And then suddenly it clicked and suddenly it worked and it was the most satisfying thing. I think that the um, other biggest struggle would probably be trying to, um, probably trying to get through the end of my PhD, not because um, I didn't have a great network of support around me from my family, but I had one kind of really inspirational mentor during my PhD who was a PhD student who was just a few years above me. And when he finished his PhD and went out and got a real job and left university, I found it so hard. I was like, I don't know what I can do now. And I don't know how I can do any of this. And I don't know how I write a paper without him being here to check it. You know, I'd really become dependent. And, and I think that 
I, well, now I look back and I realize how lucky I was to have had a mentor at all, you know, to found someone who was such a good teacher. And I use him and his advice so much scientifically. But I think that it was that kind of sudden, I'm not going to be able to do this. It was kind of like when they take the wheels off your bike, you know, the stabilizers off your bike when you're a child. And I was like, I don't know if I can ride this bike straight anymore. But, but then it was, it was all okay in the end. And, and, and I'm glad I did it by myself in the end. But yeah, they were the two times that I had a real kind of wobble. Yeah, yeah. that is amazing to actually say that, you know, you have struggled with math, but, you know, get your head around and work hard to achieve that. That's, that's, that's brilliant. And I think a good inspiration of people actually who are listening to know that even when something is hard, that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, something that you should push through, actually. It's very interesting. So I thought that math was just coming to you very easily. <laughs> no way. I don't, think it, I don't think it comes to anyone very easily. Yeah. I think everyone has to work to understand it. Mm. But we mm. have a funny concept, which mm. is very um, different in different countries. Mm. But in some countries, like the UK, mm. people say they were born bad at maths. They're like, oh, no, I've always been bad at maths. There's absolutely no way you were born bad at maths. It just either is that you weren't taught maths very well mm. or you didn't give it enough time to try and get good at it. Mm. And, and I think, I think, you know, I, I started off thinking I'm not going to be able to do this. And then I just kept thinking I can completely do this. Like you can, you just have to keep, you have to, you have to persevere in anything that you love. And, and, and it became something so useful. Yeah, that is very brilliant insight. Tell me, uh, when you look back at your childhood, how has it prepared to be who you are today? <sighs> Such a great question. I think that um, I was always um, raised in a childhood where people were very equal and society treated... I don't know how to say this articulately. Okay, so my mum was always a working mother. My mum worked from when I was probably about three weeks old I went to nursery really really young mm. and, oh well I didn't go to nursery at three weeks so I went to nursery when I was about three months old I went to the university nursery so she was working at University College London at the time and I went to the nursery there mm. and and firstly that was such a big lesson in how universities need to have nurseries as attached to their universities you yeah. know there was no way my parents could have afforded childcare if it wasn't supported by the university a little bit as well mm -hmm. and, and having that option allowed my mom to go back to work and she was a psychiatrist she was also an academic so she was working for the NHS and also working as an academic psychiatrist and I think I took that so much for granted mm -hmm. and when I was at school having a having a mum who worked a full-time academic job I just assumed was completely normal and it was only later in my my school career that I started realizing some other mums had a lot more time and, and they might not have been, you know, I couldn't, she, she wouldn't come and collect me from school because she'd be out at work. Mm. And, and then, you know, all through the summer holidays, me and my brother would go on these kind of summer holiday camps because my parents would be working all through the summer holidays. And, and it was so important for me as kind of a young person to have that opportunity to connect to so many different young people. And we grew up in, in, a part of London, which, which London is super diverse anyway, but it's also a super open and super liberal place. So I think my childhood just gave me this perception that quite rightly, everyone is incredibly equal. And, and quite rightly, we should all campaign to make everyone in our society get equal opportunities to do things. But also that the women are incredibly able within academia, and that universities should, should do everything they can to support them within that. 
Mm, that's fantastic. So what uh, would you say was one of the toughest moments in your life so far and then the learnings that you got from it? The toughest moment in my life so far? Mm. I think probably trying to decide where to do a PhD. Mm. So it's really hard when you, um, when you finish your undergraduate degree. I think particularly if you're a person from an underrepresented group, and you're interested in doing a research career at the moment so many places really want to recruit people from underrepresented groups they'll go out of their way to try and recruit you and actually something that happens when you've done a, a physics or a technology degree lots of your listeners will probably appreciate this is that everywhere will want to hire you so everyone wants to hire computer scientists and physicists and mathematicians at the moment everywhere and the hardest thing is deciding what you need to do for you. And I think that having someone that you can talk to, someone who's impartial, someone who's connected a bit, you know, understands research careers or tech careers or industry careers, so they can give you proper advice, mm. being able to go back to them and being like, this is so stupid. I don't know whether I can say this aloud. You know, all of those things that you worry and stress about so much as a, as a young person making decisions about your career, that was really important. So I really struggled with, deciding whether it was the right thing to stay at Imperial to do a PhD with a group that I, I knew, a group that I got on with really well and a group that I loved, or go to a different city and to try and do a PhD there, or whether I'd go and have you know a more conventional job where you earn a lot more money very quickly, but actually you're working in something that doesn't inspire you as much. And I think that I had a bunch of people around me that I could just talk to about making that decision. Mm -hmm. But if anyone is, is listening and considering doing it, I would really think about the people that you are potentially going to work with and whether that is a group that you could fit into and be happy with, because that's the most important thing. You know, the project is important and cool. And if it inspires you and keeps you thinking, but actually the community that you're embedding yourself into, because they're going to be your friends and your allies for the next four years. And you have to make sure that's okay. Yeah, that is so important. You are talking about that in the terms of context uh, of uh, university, but that applies exactly in the corporate as well. The project is as important as the people you are working with, you know, and that is uh, so insightful to really you know pay um you know um highlight that because you know if the project is great but the people you are you know working with you're not getting along that is going to be very tough actually so that's good so is there anything that you regret having or not having done in your life yet oh i regret i mean not having done in my life yet i still feel like i'm quite young so yes. <laughs> i i i think that i um hmm what do i regret not having done I don't, I don't massively regret anything yet. Mm -hmm. I would like to have more. Um, I think I want to start doing things more independently in science. You know that you do a PhD and you're still working for someone else. You do a postdoc and you're still working for someone else. And actually the really nice thing that happens within science is the further that you go along, the more power that you get to create your own research projects and then to try and find really cool inspirational people to work alongside. And I would really love you know, I'd really love my research career to go somewhere where I could one day have my own lab and I could think about the people I appoint and to have, you know, obviously a really cool interdisciplinary scientific team. And that's what I'd really, really like to try and do. And so whilst it's not a regret that I haven't achieved it yet, it's kind of a hope and dream of mine. Yep. One day I would have my own science group where, where, where I can start to not just say, this is how I'd do it differently. This is what I'd do differently. This is the science group that I have. Yeah, 
That's great. So now let's talk about money. Um, how do we manage to do both what we love and get paid well for it? I always ask this question because sometimes people love what they do, but they hardly get paid. You can think of some very, you know, jobs or professions. And then other people, you know, again, some of a profession that you can think of, get a lot of money, but, you know, don't really get much more meaning from their life. But you obviously, um, you know, hopefully <laughs> get paid well and love what you do. How can we manage to do both? I think that it, it comes down to what you mentioned before. I think it's about meaning and it's about what you enjoy and, and whether you need more money to do what you do. I was just at a scientific institution last week with a professor who has done a kind of spin out of his his research. So he's got a, a small startup going based on the research that they've done. And we were talking about money and whether you'd want to go, you know, some lots of academics go to parts of the world where you don't have to pay any taxes and you get incredibly well-paid salaries. And it's kind of, you know, would you do that just to make more money or would you do something you love in the city where you feel comfortable, where your family are, where you're happy mm. and, and do that for the salary that you'll get? And know that, yeah, you may not have a swimming pool or a private jet, but not everyone needs that. And, and actually you do something that's meaningful and that you enjoy. And, and I think that actually doing a, doing a postdoc, you know, the salaries we get, they aren't absolutely fantastic. You know, living in central London is incredibly expensive for anyone, but you can still afford to get by and you're still in a really lucky place compared to lots of people who haven't had the chance to do the kind of, ed have the education that you'd have, that we've had. So I think that, that actually finding the job that you do, that you love, that keeps you thinking every morning, every day you're excited to get up and go to work. Mm. That's what's really important to me. And then making sure that people have enough money to be able to live and survive comfortably and to have a family if they want to and to look after care, you know, care for elderly parents if they have to. I think that's what's really important. And that, that unfortunately we've got to a world now that has celebrated very few select people at the top by paying them extortionate amounts of money and then everyone else looks at them and think that thinks that that's what we need to aspire to have mm. but, but I have you know I have a few friends who've made a whole bunch more money than I ever will in my entire life mm. and I think that they're no more happy than me Mm. They're both doing, they're both, both say that like I only have two. They're all doing jobs that they absolutely love, which is really, really, really lucky. Mm. But they're still, you know, it's not like they've reached 10% more happiness than me. They're just as happy. They wake up every day, just as curious. Mm. And that's, and that's what I kind of wish that we'd get to a place where people realize that mm. the two, that, you know, once you've got enough money to be able to be comfortable and survive, then actually you, you're all right. Mm, yeah that's great so very great insight there you know <laughs> that's always uh, what you know getting this perspective or you know how to find that kind of balance uh, between meaning and money is uh, it's not a science you know it's uh, you know uh, again based on people's priorities and what makes them happy actually um now let's talk about movement our last part how would you actually uh, call the movement that you actually uh, actually um you know starting with these uh, uh wikipedia women or the diversity um you know everything that you're working on at the moment what will that movement will be called or you know how 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 would you like to you know to to portray that i 
I don't know what the movement would be called. I would just hope that everyone would be every everyone within science and engineering would be joining us in this fight for a more equal world within science and engineering. That at the moment we have so many issues with with recruiting and retaining scientists from underrepresented groups. Mm-hmm. That that actually we all need to work together to to end and to fix to to fix the problems that we have within science. And so I hope that this movement will just be one based on equality and kind of recognizing that when we have equality and equity and diversity, we actually have a much more excellent scientific workforce. So that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping will happen. And I, I recognize that it's a long and a slow process. And I recognize that we're going to have to invest, invest a lot of money and time into doing it. But I think that ultimately it will be really, really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I really, really hope happens that that, that everyone comes on board with this fight. So it's not just a few people, you know, making their throats sore by fighting all the time. Mm, yeah, that's great. So now I know that you are young. How old are you again, Jess? I'm 30. 30, yes. How do you want to be remembered for? I know that you are very young, but, you know, <laughs> if you, you want to portray, you know, or, you know, project yourself like, let's say, 70 years <laughs> from now. <laughs> I, I want to be remembered for... Being a scientist who did really cool science with materials, I love what I do. I genuinely love that science side of it. I really love spectroscopy. My favorite kind of spectroscopy is called Raman spectroscopy. So I'd like everyone to always think, Jess, instantly think Raman spectroscopy. But then I'd also like to be remembered as someone who campaigned really tirelessly on this on this issue of diversity. And that one day, you know, maybe in a few years or in 10 years or in 20 years, we don't have to do it so much because it's something that's just accepted and is done by everyone. So maybe it will be like people will talk about your life and they'll be like, oh, and there was this like six years when they achieved this, but then they did it and it was over and no one had to keep talking about that because it just happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping we'll get to that day, but, but you know, it's slow work. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's great. So what did you learn actually for, you know, your experience so far that you most want to transmit to others? In, 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 in advocacy and equality and diversity and all of this work that so many people do, even if you feel really tiny and that you feel you can't do anything and you feel too insignificant to be able to contribute, you can have a massive difference. So maybe that's just writing a Wikipedia page. Maybe that's nominating your supervisor or your boss or your direct manager for a prize. Maybe that's reading a book that really changes your mind and changes the way you think about things and then making sure other people have access and opportunity to read that book too. But so many people can have an impact on the world and, and you should never feel like you're too small to be able to do it. Mm, that's super. So what would you say is your superpower? I think my superpower is making, taking people, it's, it's the opposite of someone who becomes invisible. It's taking people who are invisible and making them obvious again. Ah, I love that. So tell me, um, uh, uh, outside of your, you know, day in life, what is your daily practice that you make sure that you do to do meaningful work and live okay. a life? Um, my, my daily practice that I do is that I always give myself some time to do some sport. I have to have something like that in my day. I have to, you know, maybe I have an awful lot of energy and I put a lot of that into editing Wikipedia, a huge amount of that into analyzing materials. But then the other part of it is I have to do something like swimming or running every day so that I don't go crazy. And, and so that's my daily practice to keep me me is to definitely do that. 
Okay, thank you so much, Jess. I know that you have to go. And it was a great pleasure to have you on this show. I'm going to put the link of, um, you know, how people can contact you in the show notes. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. What are you committed to do today to do more meaningful work and live a meaningful life? The show notes of this episode of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life are available on my webpage, francinebelli.com slash podcast with all the references and resources shared on this show. Whilst you are there, leave me a message to tell me in the comments what was your key takeaway from this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to show your love and support, subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app where you are listening to this podcast and leave me a five-star review. It will take you a minute, but it will mean a lot to me and will also help me to spread this word and being found online. So thank you for listening to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I will see you next week for another epic episode of this season four. Until then, dream, act and make an impact. Lots of love. <laughs>